in the 60s that I was a Green Bay Packer fan. Now, most folks in Alabama, especially in central Alabama, were Green Bay Packer fans because Bart Starr was from Montgomery, Alabama. He went to Lanier High School, and the only mistake I ever know he made, he went to the University of Alabama. And, but we, he's, he's forgiven for that now. And, but, um, so we were all Green Bay Packer fans, and we followed the Green Bay Packers. And I remember one year, they just were not doing that well. And the stories told of Vince Lombardi, their, their coach, their infamous, I mean, what a, what a coach Vince Lombardi was. As a matter of fact, with the Super Bowl, don't they, they play for the uh, Lombardi Trophy? So that kind of gives you an idea of this legend. Well, they weren't doing so well, and he went into a team meeting. He called all the players together, and he walks in. And he says, guys, we're going to get back to basics. And he holds up a football. We're going to get back to basics. This is a football. Are there any questions so far? The story's told that Ray Nitsky, their fierce linebacker, he raised his hand and said, hey, coach, could you just slow it down a little bit? <laughs> well, that kind of tells you what might have been wrong with their, with their football team. Well, this morning, I want us to get back to basics. I want us to get back to what this word says concerning what God expects of our lives, get back to the basics of Scripture standing on that solid rock, realizing who it is that we represent, represent who it is that we strive to serve. See, I'm afraid that the church today is more focused on social not spiritual. I'm concerned that the church is more concerned with physical needs and physical connections and conditions and not heart condition. And that's really what we need to be focused on. And the bottom line is, is what's really wrong with this country and with this world is I think the church has just quit preaching that old, old story of Jesus and his love. We need to get back to basics. We need to understand. We need a, an understanding of that solid rock. We need to be more focused on who Christ is. We need to be focused on the fact that we serve an all-powerful God we need to be more focused on the fact that every single one of us will one day stand before that all-powerful God and give an answer. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. We talk about that a lot. But it's almost as if people have a deaf ear to that. 
We need to get back to preaching that our God is holy, our God is righteous. He's merciful, yes. He's gracious, yes. He is loving, yes. But there is a payday someday. The church needs to be preaching that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to avoid, and the only way to avoid that hell is through the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ and by faith putting their trust in Him. This morning I want to talk about one of those basic principles, one of those basic doctrines, one of those basic teachings that we had better never get across or get away from, and that is the cross of Calvary. You can probably tell based on the different songs that we were singing that we were going to talk about the cross this morning, right? And the fact, the very title of the sermon is Our Family Tree. The Lesters sing a song about our family tree. What a powerful song that is. And when we talk about the family tree, we are talking about the cross. And here's the good news about our family tree. It makes us all blood relatives. Aren't you glad of that? We are all related by the blood of Christ. We're in His body. And it's that family tree that brings all of us together into, well, I want to say social bubble, but I'm not going to go there. It brings us in together as a family unit to love one another, to support one another, to worship with one another. It is on that cross where our debt was settled. It's on that cross that payment in full was made, where our redemption, our reconciliation was attained, obtained through Christ Jesus. It is where the cry, it is finished, spelled the doom of sin and wrong. And I know today... Preaching on the cross is not very popular. It is here with this congregation, and it always will be. As a matter of fact, I remember um, years and years and years ago, I, I, I mean, I, right, after I became, right after I became the pastor, and uh, I preached on the cross, I and mean, I've done it a gazillion times since then, but I'm just saying when I first came, uh, I, I preached on the cross, and actually preached on the same portion of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning. And uh, Marge Fleming, I don't know if you remember Marge Fleming or not. I know many of you do. Just a sweet, sweet lady. Loved the Lord. Um, after I preached, she just said, she came to me and she said, You know, Pastor, I never tire of hearing that story. And I agree with her. I never tire of hearing of what Christ accomplished on my behalf, on your behalf, on the cross. I never tire of hearing that glorious truth that it is finished. The payment has been made for my sin. It has been dealt with. But God's Word tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. 
But to us who are saved, it is the power of God. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish. is foolishness. But to us, it's the power of God. See, that's what brings me so much joy. That's what gets me excited when I stand here. Yeah, the world may say what you're saying is foolish. It's ridiculous. They may reject it. They may snarl at it. They may, they may ridicule us for, for preaching that Christ died for their sins. But as I stand here and preach that message that they snarl and, and, and dislike and reject and think is foolishness, God's Word tells me it's the power of God. And for somebody that is weak and frail as I am, as limited as I am, in my abilities, I've got to tell you that when I stand here and I open this book and we talk about what this book says as God reveals His Word to us through the pages of this book, i got to tell you, all of a sudden, it's not about my frailties, it's not about my weaknesses, it's not about my inabilities, it is about the power of God. And folks, that should get us excited. And that should cause every one of us to understand that as ministers of the word of reconciliation, as his ambassadors, we have a responsibility, as frail as you may be, as weak as you may be, to share this gospel. Romans 1.16 tells us what? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we can stand here and preach and sing, God, you've got this. I may not have it, but you've got it. And that is just exciting. And when you're out on the street witnessing or you're teaching a Sunday school class or you're doing anything where you're representing Christ and you're sharing that message, you have the, the assurance that it is the power of God. And folks, that's powerful. This morning I want us to talk about our family tree. Again, understanding that we are related by blood, the blood of Christ. Turn with me to Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Ephesians 1, 7. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Redemption through His blood. And here in a few weeks, we're going to be talking about the virgin birth. We're going to be talking about His blood and why it could only be His blood to purchase our redemption. And the Scripture bears that out so wonderfully. In whom we have redemption through His blood. Jump over to Ephesians 2. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, 
who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinance, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Starting with verse 9. Much more then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were made reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more than being reconciled we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement, the reconciliation. The cross is where the blood of Christ flowed freely. It is the blood, it is the cross where that payment in full was made. And in the midst of, of this, this storm that is swirling around us, regardless of the din that just seems to be drowning out sanity, we look to the cross during these times. We look to the cross. Because looking to the cross, we know what comes after. See, remember the apostles, the disciples. They were so taken back. They were so disturbed. They were so saddened. They were so distressed at the crucifixion when Christ was taken and arrested. And then at the crucifixion. It was bleak for them. They saw what was going on as bleak. But God's Word says, but the Lord saw it as something to be endured for the joy that was set behind Him, or set before Him. The joy that was set before Him. He endured the cross. So folks, regardless of all the garbage that's going on in the world, and all the, the fear-mongering and all of the bad news and all of the distress that, distressful things that are going on, we know that God has a plan and purpose, and regardless of how difficult it gets, we know that God is on His throne. You, maybe you're going to get tired of hearing me say it, but I'm not going to get tired of saying it. Matter of fact, I need to say it. So we trust Him. That what the cross tells us is regardless of how bad it gets, there's the empty tomb to look forward to. The cross tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. The cross tells us that God has a plan, God has a purpose, and look what was accomplished through that cruel cross, through that empty, through the empty tomb. So before we get into the crucifixion itself, because there's some things I want to point out to you this morning. I want to remind you of Deuteronomy. 
as we get into the crucifixion. I want to remind you of Deuteronomy 21. Look at Deuteronomy 21. So verse 22. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. And if a man hath committed a sin worthy of death, and he be to be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him thou that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. Can I read that again? He that is hanged is accursed of God. That thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Turn with me to Galatians. Galatians 3. Start with verse 13. Let's start with verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth him shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangs on a tree. See, that goes back to Deuteronomy 21. One more reminder. First Peter. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 24, 1 Peter 2, 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. Well, this morning I want us to look at the one who bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Turn with me to Matthew. Chapter 26 is where we're going to start this morning. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26 verse 30 is where Peter's denial is predicted where the Lord tells them what's going to happen, that they were going to be scattered, and Peter basically says, I am not going to, I'm not going to deny you. I might die with you, but I'm not going to deny you. And the Lord says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. No, 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 no. He's not going to do that. Then the next part of Matthew 26, we have Christ taking some of the disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And there he, he prays, knowing what's about to come. And, and as he goes into the a Garden of Gethsemane, it's um, early, early Wednesday morning or late, late Tuesday night. Tuesday night, evening, you know, 11.30, almost midnight. So they, they've been up all day, and so they're, they're tired and they're sleepy. And the Lord knows what's coming the next day. That's Nisan the 14th. That's preparation day. He knows what's coming. So when he's in the garden, it's either really late Tuesday night or really early Wednesday morning, like at 12.30, 1 o'clock. That's where he's there praying in the garden. And we know what happens. Judas, Iscariot has betrayed him. And they get Judas to point him out. Because remember, there were no street lights. There were no really... There was no, they were in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was dark. And they were there to capture the Lord Jesus. But they needed Judas to point him out to make sure that they got the right one. So Judas comes and greets him and hugs him and, and, and kisses him and they know that's Jesus. Because it was dark. So there he betray, he, Christ is betrayed. Then we know that in, in verses 57 through 68 of, of Matthew 26 there we have the false witnesses. And remember this was still early in the morning. It was still nighttime basically Wednesday morning really early and you know it was against Jewish law to have a trial at night because you couldn't get all the Sanhedrin there you couldn't get everybody there so this trial was illegal but they had a plan and they had a purpose it's against the Jewish law to have the trial there at at night early in the morning and so they brought these false witnesses in and they were uh, bearing false witness but they couldn't make anything stick. So finally Caiaphas, Caiaphas, the high priest, he just asked him outright who he was. And Christ declares that, well he asked him, are you, the, I, I, I adjure you, verse 63, and Jesus held his peace and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that you tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power and coming in clouds of heaven. In other words, taking dominion of the earth. And by the way, Caiaphas had said that. When did he say it? You go back to John chapter 11. Remember after Lazarus was raised from the dead and the temple spies saw Lazarus being raised and the, the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees, the Pharisees and the scribes, they all got together and they said, what are we going to do with this man? Because if he keeps, he keeps doing all these miracles, why he just raised somebody from the dead. If he keeps doing this, everybody's going to believe on him. And Caiaphas, the high priest here, says, basically, you don't know anything at all. And him being high priest, talking under the influence of the Holy Spirit, just blurted out what Christ just said, that, that he, was going, he was the one to save his people from their sins. And basically, Christ was saying, 
you already are aware of this. You know who I am. Well, blasphemy, blasphemy. By the way, according to the law, how was someone that had committed blasphemy been to be put to death? Stoning. Stoning. That, under the law, it was stoning is how they were to be put to death. See, it didn't measure up to crucifixion because that curses everyone who hangs on a tree. But how were they... But they weren't going to settle for stoning. They wanted to crucify him. They wanted to make a mockery of him. They wanted to make sure that he was thoroughly punished and the whole nation would see what was, what was going on and how powerless he really is. They were going to make an example of him. They, verse 67 say they spit on him. And while all this was going on, and verses 69 and following down through 75, guess what we see Peter doing? Denying the Lord. How many times? Three times. I don't know him. Oh, yeah, you do. You were with him. No, no, no. I don't, I don't know him. So our Lord was hauled away in the wee hours of the morning. Because remember, by the time he gets to the cross, it's about 9 o'clock in the morning. So all of this other was happening in the wee hours of the morning up into, and this was all Wednesday, Nassan, the 14th, preparation day. Why do we keep saying preparation day? What, according to Exodus 12, was to take place on preparation day? The Lamb. The Lamb of God was to be prepared for the slaughter for the Passover. That's exactly what was going on on this time, on this day. Verse 27, on chapter 27, verse 1, When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, even though they knew that he had healed the blind, he had caused the dumb to hear, the, deaf, uh, the, the, the dumb to speak, the lame to walk, he had raised the dead. But their heart's desire was to put him to death. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. Religious leaders and political leaders today would put him to death all over again. They want to do it now, let me tell you. And since they can't get to him, guess who they want to put? Shut up. They want the church to be silent. They want the church not to have any influence. They want to close the church. They want to muzzle the church. That's not going to happen here. It's not going to happen here. See, I have a mandate that supersedes any other mandate that come down the pike. This is my mandate. Not, I don't care what a mayor or a governor or a president or anybody says. I have a mandate here. Anyway, that's, we'll talk more about that some other time. Matthew 27, verse 15. And I read this verse, and, I, and as I read it, I think the nation of Israel, he came into his own. Israel, the nation that God's intent is 
for them to be a nation of priests. This nation that he said he loved back in Deuteronomy 7, he loves them so much. They had an opportunity to ask for Jesus, not somebody else, to be released. Verse 15. Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. By the way, which feast is this? Passover. Ah, Passover. So guess what Christ is about to become? The Passover lamb. Absolutely. Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. We know from Acts 3.14 that Barabbas was a murderer. He was a spiteful, wicked man. He was a murderer. He was a popular murderer, well known, but he was a murderer. So right from the very beginning, the Lord Jesus, the innocent, innocent one, took the place of a very guilty one. Kind of reminds me of him taking my place. From the very beginning, called Barabbas. And therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas, or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. And when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor answered and said unto them, Were these two shall ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And they all said unto him, Let him be crucified. Forget the fact that had he committed a crime, which he didn't, it was stoning, not crucifixion. And the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? You notice they didn't answer him. They just cried out the more saying, Let him be crucified. Makes you wonder sometimes if some of these people who had gathered there, if not some of the same ones that were crying out Hosanna just a few days before. But verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing but that rather a tumult, an uproar was made, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, you see to it. And then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Do you know what's interesting? Is after the resurrection and the apostles were preaching and teaching, going from house to house, the word of God was going forth, and the gospel of the kingdom was being proclaimed, the kingdom church was being established. They asked the apostles, some of these same people, they asked the apostles, what are you trying to do? 
bring his blood upon us and our children? Or you said to. You said to. You see, uh, just typical politicians. But anyway. Trying to his blood be upon us and our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Sometimes we don't emphasize the scourging of that cat of nine tails that's reserved for traitors and murderers, which our Lord was neither one. But to scourge before a crucifixion, that's like a double whammy. And the, the intent was just make him so weak to make it more heinous. They crucified and they delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus unto the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, which would consist of about 600 men. 600 men. You're talking about wanting to make him a spectacle. They wanted to make him a spectacle. 600 men, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. When they had planted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. I read this, and it's just mind-boggling that they could... How dare they? How could they? To the one who but spoke and brought it all into existence. I'm sure they regret doing that now. They stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe and a reed. They mocked him. They spit upon him. And they took the reed and they smote him on the head. And I'm, that, that crown of thorns was to mock, to resemble, you think you're a king? Well, here, use this. And they put it on his head and they, they hit him on the head in order to drive those thorns deeper, deeper into the flesh. See, the, the hatred, the bitterness, the anger was so prevalent that just scourging wasn't enough. The mocking wasn't enough. The crucifixion wasn't going to be enough. This was Satan's way of saying, you seed of the woman, you think you're going to destroy me? You watch and see what type of treatment I'm going to have poured out on you. See, what Satan didn't understand was what was being poured out on Christ was because of my sin. He was paying that full debt that I owed. The full wrath of God was being poured out on my sin. Payment in full. This is what I deserved. It's what you deserved. Not this perfect Lamb of God. And they mocked him and they took the robe off from him and they put his own raiment on him and they led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were coming to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of the skull, 
They gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. Gall was a painkiller. No easy way out. Don't stupefy. He wanted to suffer what I, what I deserved. When he tasted, he wouldn't drink of it. And they crucified him. It's about 9 o'clock on Wednesday morning. They crucified him and they parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them. Upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. And they set up over his head this accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. I think the reason Pilate did that is because he basically wanted the people to see what happens if you try to stir things up. See what happens to your king? Your slaves to Rome. This is what happens to your king. And then were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by and reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroys the temple and buildeth it in three days, save yourself. If you be the Son of God, come down from the cross. How many this morning are glad he didn't come down off the cross? Do you know he could have called down 72,000 angels? He'd already told the apostles that back in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they were trying to protect him, and Christ told Peter, he said, hey, put your sword away. I, I could call down 72,000 angels. But that's not the will of the Father. And those people would have been impressed. I'm not sure how long they would have believed. I mean, if you don't believe when you rise, raise the dead man from the grave, if you don't, when somebody's blind, I'm not sure they would have believed him then. But if you be the Son of God, come down off the cross and we'll believe you. I'm glad he didn't. Because my sins would still be unpaid. He saved others himself he cannot save. If he be the king of the Jews, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. And now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lassabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that said, this man calls for Elias, Elijah. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. And the rest said, let's be here. Let's sit here. Let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. Well, he wasn't calling on Elijah. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. 
We know from John 19.30 that what he cried with a loud voice was, It is finished. That's what he cried with a loud voice. And I think the reason he cried with a loud voice because it was at 3 o'clock. See, the, God's, word is, God's Word is so good. It is so specific. We know that it was at 3 o'clock. And at 3 o'clock is when the, the nation of Israel, there in Jerusalem, they were instructed to blow the shofar horn at 3 o'clock as a signal to kill the Passover lamb, to slaughter the Passover lamb. That's what was happening there. He cries with a loud voice because it is finished as that shofar horn in the distance was blaring. It's time to slaughter the lamb. That's what was, that was what's taking place here. And Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. He surrendered it. At the right moment, he was in control of it. He yielded it up. The Passover lamb. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and they came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's children. When the evening was come, sundown, sunset, because you couldn't leave a man on a cross, couldn't leave him according to Jewish law, they took him off the cross. They put him in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. But they knew that the they had to get him off the cross because the next day was Passover. And so this Jesus of Nazareth, who was such a loving and kind teacher, died. And we closed the book, right? We close the book and we think, well, that's what you get for being a nice guy. That's what you get for trying to do some good in a world that's so evil and so wicked. Good guys finish last, this proves it. Is that what took place? Well, I'm just so glad that Matthew doesn't end in the 27th chapter. Because there's chapter 28. In verse 6, he is not here, for he is risen, as he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. Up from the grave he arose. Folks, what the church needs to do is get back to basics and preach that gospel that Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. 
And that is the power of God unto salvation. The world needs to hear that good news because that and that only is going to change their sinful lives. That is the only message. It's not trying to... what some of the churches try to do. It's not about entertainment. It's not about social justice. It's about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that a holy, righteous God loves us so much that He was willing to go to such an extreme measure to purchase our salvation, to buy us back, to redeem us. Hallelujah. And this morning, if you've never, by faith, trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to sing a song in conclusion. It's a good song. And while we sing this song, we don't have an invitation where you come down to the, because we don't have an altar, first of all, but we don't, don't, you don't have to come down and talk to the preacher. You need to talk to God. And if you'd never, by faith, put your trust in Christ, while we sing this song, this is your time to say, Lord, I am a sinner. I realize I'm a sinner. I realize that I deserve hell, and by faith, I am trusting in you. And if you've never trusted Christ, this is your opportunity by faith to believe in him. And if you say, well, I'm still confused. Hey, we'll stay until Jesus comes to tell you what God's word says on what you must do to be saved. And the good news is, Christ has already done it. The work's already been done. God asks you to believe. And when you believe, He makes you a new creation in Christ.